Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here is your host, Barron's Hall of Fame advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Welcome to another episode of Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors. It's your host, John Cutton. I hope everybody is doing well today. Freezing here in New York, for the record. Uh, I am very excited to have what has become a dear friend, consultant, industry legend, if I may say so, uh, David Grau Jr., uh, CEO, founder, renaissance man of succession resource group as a uh, repeat offender here we like to get david on uh at least once a year uh when a schedule permits to give us an update on what is going on in the mna world so david thanks for being our guest today and uh would love for you to just say a quick hello to the audience and uh and we'll get right into it yeah no wonderful and you know john always happy to be a repeat offender join you again uh, frankly, just have a chance for us to record the conversations you and I have periodically throughout the year, sometimes multiple times in any given month, because it is always a lively conversation. So uh, excited to share, yeah, what we've been seeing out there, trends, predictions. But uh, while we sort of get the ivory tower seat working on you know hundreds of deals all across the industry, I also I'd love hearing your perspective, you know, down in the trenches. So should be a healthy banter today. Yeah, love love to do it, and uh, and looking forward to it. David and I were just uh, catching up before we started to record here, and we you know we talk a lot, and David does a lot of work for for my team, uh, but as as he said a minute ago, I have people for that now, so we haven't actually uh, seen each other face to face or screen to screen in a while. So it's good to, good to see your face and uh, and catch up today. So, you know, David, to get into it, you know, I'd love to just start, I know, as you said, you guys are super active and, and support lots of advisors and deal flow in the industry. Um, what went on in 2022, right? So we're recording this, it'll probably come out, you know, a, a few weeks from here, but today is February 3rd or 4th, I forget what date is, but it's early February. Uh, and I'd love to kind of go back and kind of get your views on Kind of how the MA space differed from 2021 uh, into what we just finished in 2022, what you guys saw. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an interesting year for sure, 2022. I would say the Cliff Notes version, we really for the first time ever. I mean, I've been doing this back to the early 2000s and the valuation of practices being bought and sold, whether they were you know, fee-only RIAs on the security side, you know, a little bit of insurance or accounting. The multiples, John, you and I both know, have just generally and pretty consistently by a little bit or a lot gone up every single year. 2022, I got to say, was the first time I've ever actually seen these multiples sort of flatline, for lack of a better term, you know, instead of going up slightly, which is what we had seen historically, uh, you know, just looking at simple top line multiples, which, you know, there's top line multiples, earnings based multiples, they're just rules of thumb and tools to help us approximate, you know, what's happening out there, kind of like a PE ratio on you know, publicly traded companies. So the recurring multiple, for example, for the first time didn't go up. I wouldn't say it really went down. It went from 2.8 three in 2021 down to 2.8 in 2020 
too. So kind of a rounding error, but in general, it didn't go up. And that I think is a trend or noteworthy item all by itself. A um, few other quick hitters, and then you know, we can sort of unpack some of these if you want. Your earlier comment on, you know, you you having a guy or a gal to do a lot of the stuff that, you know, you used to do, uh, you know, and way back in the day, you used to do obviously everything, like all of us as founders. That's another really interesting trend, I would say, we are starting to see more of, not necessarily at the level and scales of economy that, you know, KWM has maybe reached. But even folks who have, you know, a million, two million in revenue, they're starting to actively try to build businesses that don't need them. And I would tell you, I mean, that's pretty rare and a lot of them won't ever necessarily get there. But, you know, being intentional about building a business that could someday operate independent of you is still pretty cool to see. It seems obvious in an industry full of professional planners, uh, but it's just something we hadn't really seen historically. Yeah, so um, we're we're seeing it too, which is interesting. So yeah, I, I liked your word of unpack. You know me; I like to kind of dr <laughs> drill down a little. So, um, so what what's interesting is we're kind of seeing the same thing, right? To kind of trade your big picture view of lots of deals to my more micro view of of uh, you know a handful or maybe two handfuls in a typical year. Um, so you saw from 2.83 to about a 2.8 multiple of recurring revenue, uh, and I'd assume kind of those kind of, you know, profit or EBITDA type multiples followed suit as well, where right. instead of, you know, five, maybe it was 4.9 or somewhere along those lines, uh, which is kind of interesting. And now... Do you believe that is strictly due to financing rates going up with interest rates, the market, you know, and, you know, both stock and bond market, uh, you know, kind of taking a little bit of a hit or what do you, what do you attribute that to? Boy, where to start? <laughs> so to your point, um, market volatility for sure didn't do anybody any favors because uh, we saw the same thing in a little bit in 2020, 08, but certainly the end of last year had a lot of buyers on edge between the market volatility, interest rate environment. When interest rates are changing, markets are volatile like they were. Lenders tend to get, you know, they're already belt and suspenders, but they get a little extra conservative, which makes getting deals done and pushed through a little more challenging. Um, I mean, you got inflation sprinkled in there. I mean, it was just kind of this perfect storm of uncertainty combined with something that I know you saw, John, and we've been seeing a lot more of this. There's a lot of talk about private equity backed buyers. And, you know, basically everybody has heard, or most people have heard at this point, you know, some rumor or know somebody who got, you know, 12 times their earnings or 14 times or double digits on their earnings, which 20 times I'm here. Exactly. I mean, just stuff that we yes. haven't seen historically in the industry, you know. And so I think the challenge with this has become and part of what helped drive values flat or down slightly is we have historically, and this is where I say I know you've dealt with it, we've historically seen generally unreasonable sellers like they, they want more than the firm is generally worth they want to get paid faster than you know most buyers are willing to do they want less risk than most buyers are willing to stomach but you can usually get it figured out unfortunately where we started was kind of unreasonable sellers and again 
we're all going to be there someday, folks listening. I fully acknowledge that. You know, John, you'll be there. I'll be there someday. When we're selling, it'll be our turn to be unreasonable. And, and we probably won't think we're being unreasonable at the time, but we probably will be. But we've gone from unreasonable sellers to now sometimes irrational sellers, where they're hearing these private equity numbers and they're starting to think that, you know, selling their practice for two and a half or three times revenue or seven or eight times earnings is, you know, I wouldn't give it away for that. They just, I wouldn't do it. And unfortunately, I think they forget how averages work. If the average was 2.8, let's say on recurring revenue, or, you know, average is eight on earnings, that means there are certainly folks above it, but there are also folks below it, which is how we get to the average. Yet everybody I talk to is above it. I mean, nobody is below average. And unfortunately, as we start doing a lot of the valuation work, you know, each year, we see there's a lot of practices that, I mean, they're good practices, but they're fixer uppers. So I think that irrationality, you know, being unreasonable is causing buyers to swing the other way with a lot of their deals and, you know, maybe not lowball, but be a lot more conservative. I don't know. What are you seeing, John? I mean, you, you're doing these deals. So you mean to say that some people have ugly babies? Is that what you're saying, David? Uh, occasionally, yet nobody likes to hear it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get it. And I mean, listen, everybody's proud of their business and thinks thinks their business is the best. And uh, so, yes, I see that. And I see uh, lots of, I think, irrational is a good word, uh, sellers out there as well. You know, so, uh, yeah, so we're, we're seeing the same kind of things, you know, I was going to dig a little, a little bit deeper with you, David. So, um, it sounds like, right. Prices, let's say, like you said, flatlined, right. Um, you've got, you know, private equity, maybe driving unreasonable expectations or big right. aggregators that are paying top dollar that kind of have a business, different business model. Uh, but you said a couple of things I wanted to drill down on. Before I drill down, what about deal structure? Um, you know, I, I know with, you know, interest rates changing, um, personally, we've uh, looked at it. And, you know, I had a, a, you know, a facility that was at a really attractive interest rate. Uh, I have a secondary facility that's not at as attractive as an interest rate. And if I, if I went to get an additional facility today, and I would bet it's at even a higher interest rate. Right. Um, so we've started to structure our deals a little bit differently because of the supply of money and the cost of it. Um, I I would assume that's what's going on in the industry, but I'd love to just get your your kind of take on that. Uh, that has definitely been one of the interesting trends that we have seen as of late as well is not that deal volume is down, but it has definitely slowed. You know, the, the pace of getting these deals done, the duration, you know, to get a deal completed is longer. And to your point, that's, it's not because of, you know, interest rates by itself or market volatility. It's these things all combined that are causing, you know, buyers like you all and everybody else to sort of roll their sleeves up and, and get more creative, especially with, you know, the cost of capital at this point, you know, being, Eight nine percent is not uncommon, and you know, in the totality of things, commercial lending rates that doesn't actually seem that bad, but compared to you know loans that a buyer acquired a couple of years ago, that seems like an obscenely high rate, and so they are starting to use more seller financing. We've got more cash being brought to the table. We just you see a lot more creative deal structuring, which is then just you know, more of a dialogue back and forth between the buyer and the seller, and then you talk about 
security and collateral because they're not just getting all their cash up front. So the deals are still getting done. But to your point, as you compare the deals now to the deals two and three years ago, these, these deals seem so much more complex, or I would say robust in many cases, where everyone's trying to sort of create this win-win. And then again, if you want to go deeper on this one, you know, historically, we've seen a ton of seller financing, and then banks enter the space. And then there's a lot of bank financing because sellers never really wanted to be the bank anyway. And now we're starting to see, you know, some broker dealers tossing their hat in the ring, providing capital, which is one more interesting, you know, turn of the page. Sure. Yeah. Nope. BDs are doing that for sure. We're seeing it on our side. Um, and it's funny, you know, David, I'm reflecting back to our last conversation. I remember vividly having a conversation with you on our podcast, in fact, about interest rates and dry, you know, that driving valuation and you talking about right. how it does the same thing in the mortgage world with real estate and so on, et cetera. Um, and how simple it used to be, right? Old school, where it was kind of like, hey, I'll give you a you know small down payment. You hold a note for five years with a reasonable interest rate and we shake hands and, uh, you know, kind of the old school place. But I yeah. guess to a degree, right, with where we are in the economy, as interest rates have risen, as banks have kind of tightened maybe their lending requirements again because of the risk in the marketplace, we're almost back to where we might have been not fully right because the, you know, the, the there's still a lot of availability right but back to more of that traditional deal that maybe 10 years ago uh or maybe even less than 10 years ago was a little bit more in vogue where two business owners met and said hey how about i give you a, you know a 30 percent down payment and you hold a note right. for three or four or five years and you know and the interest rate will be reasonable but not quite what the banks are charging perhaps yeah. Uh, etc. So it sounds like, you know, and I don't, I, again, want to paint you into a corner here, but it sounds like valuations have flatlined, stayed consistent. And then from a, from a seller's perspective, maybe the structure um, is less, um, not only has the price not gone up in the past year, but the structure maybe I'd say isn't quite as advantageous or as protected as, you know, getting 70 or 80% uh, in a lump sum with, with bank financing. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair you know, restatement of these points. And again, you know, you can imagine being a seller, if you're going to sell and look at getting, I don't know, let's say you got a million dollars in revenue, you're going to sell for 3 million because it's mostly all recurring the sellers historically have just wanted their check and then they'd exit stage left when they were ready to you know, fully retire. But now, yeah, to your point, it's, well, if the buyer's going to be paying eight, 9% interest to the bank over a decade, well, shoot, you know, I wouldn't mind taking some of the money up front, you know, 40 or 50%, and then I'll, I'll finance the balance and I'll keep 7% interest to your point. You know, it's a good deal for the buyer, seller, when they look at, you know, 7% on million and a half dollars over a couple of years, it's more money in their pocket. And they're generally not, I mean, on paper, they're worried about the buyer paying them back or their attorney is worried about it because that's what attorneys do. But in reality, you know, they've usually gone through a pretty thorough vetting process or they already know their buyer. We're in a highly regulated financial industry. Like the odds of the buyer just stiffing the seller or not being able to pay them back is pretty minuscule anyway. So yeah, it's, all of a sudden, where sellers, you know, had really started to get away from the seller financing, now they're the ones bringing it back up, which is an interesting turn of events. <laughs> hmm. 
Yeah, we're we're seeing the same thing. I won't say the sellers I'm dealing with are suggesting it. We're suggesting it, and they're they're open to it. Uh, you know, or, or many of them. I'm sorry, some aren't. Some are just yeah, as you said, just saying nope. I want thirty two times gross revenue, and I'd like it yeah. in a lump sum uh, tomorrow if possible with no uh, no hooks. Um, what about the uh, deal type from a are you seeing more sell and stays? Are you seeing more full sales, partial sales, affiliations? I think some folks call them today. Like, what are you what are you seeing uh, in the marketplace? Likely another cause of why deal volume may not be down, but the time to get these deals closed is taking longer. I.e., deals have just kind of slowed down a bit. Is because to your point. They've also just gotten a little bit more complicated where it used to be kind of vanilla. Either, John, you were ready to retire and I'll buy your business or you weren't and I'll call you next year, put you in my tickler file and I'll keep reconnecting until either your spouse tells you to stop working so much or you have a health issue or, you know, markets go up and down and you get tired of the lovely roller coaster that has been your career and they decide to finally call it to now being, I don't want to say more intentional about it, but they're definitely being more gradual in their approach and starting the process earlier, which then, yeah, to your point, opens up all of a sudden, well, I don't want to keep working full-time by myself doing what I've been doing, but I also don't want to retire. And so now we're seeing folks do partial book sales, you know, really simple, very easy. They sell off their C&D clients. And to be fair, no buyer really wants their C&D clients. What they want are the A and B clients. We'll start with the C's and D's, demonstrate success, show them proof of concept. And in a couple of years, I'll buy the A and B clients. A lot of actual partial sales where you know folks are selling off 20, 30% stake in their business, uh, tapping into a bigger firm, you know, like a KWM, for example, where I can just simply do more of the things that I'm good at and that I like doing and less of everything else. Uh, so a lot more of those deals, mergers, but basically just a lot more gradual exits where people are sort of taking a crawl, walk, run approach to it instead of this very analog work and then sell and retire which I think is good for the clients at the end of the day. Yeah, agree. I think uh, the, the thing we're seeing a lot and having a lot of success is, you know, call it a three to five year buyout where advisors are coming in and saying, hey, um, I'm not ready to fully retire, but I'm tired and not loving the market and working harder, doing things I don't right. enjoy. How about we come and, you know, we, we buy the business, right, in increments where, it's more of an installment sale and they want to be paid to stay, uh, you know, an income to keep serving the clients and uh, ultimately the equity exchange, the full equity gets purchased, uh, say over a three to five year period of time. And I think you're exactly right. What we've experienced there uh, is it's good for everybody, right? It's good for the client. They get to work with, you know, their trusted advisor and the future successor for say three years, right? Where they yep. get to build that relationship and rapport together. Uh, it's good for the seller in that he or she um, doesn't need to just kind of dive right into the pool and they can go slow. And right. as you know, it's hard for sellers sometimes to give up control and their identity and all the things they've done. So having, you know, three to four to five years to actually like phase out on their terms and be able to, you know, the way I always describe it is by the time you get to that three to five years, 
you know, it's so easy. The clients are comfortable with the new advisor and it's, you know, time to just go have a retirement party and celebrate it as opposed to, as you said before, take a check and, you know, exit stage left. It's good for the client. It's good for the seller. And I actually think it's good for the buyer in that they get to, um, I don't want to say date because it's contractual. You're going to buy the whole thing, but right. actually understand that advisor strengths, weaknesses, relationships, and pivot, right. To make sure if necessary, that the transition will go well, because I've also had the experience where someone wants out in six or 12 months, but yet they didn't have the, they didn't do their job well, you know, right. despite our efforts to transition the goodwill or client relationship uh, to the new advisor because they weren't yet fully ready uh, to make that change. So couldn't, yeah. couldn't agree more. So I, I want to shift gears a little, David, right? So yeah. I'm still unpacking the first thing you said, just so <laughs> you know, the first paragraph or two, um, you, you know, you, you hit a lot, obviously not your, uh, not your first rodeo here, but um, I'd love your opinion and I'll, I'll share mine as well. Um, so earlier you had mentioned that you're seeing what I'll call the professionalization of some even smaller firms, right? Where a, a million or two or $3 million firm is saying, I see all these big guys and gals out there, right? That are kind of serial acquirers. I'm going to go build a business around buying businesses and, you know, put somebody in charge of M&A and, you know, line up financing and, um, you know, I think lots of consultants in the industry, um, rightfully so, have given advisors advice like, hey, if you want to go buy businesses, yep. it's funny, I, I literally just before we started, uh, our mutual friend, John Randall, who I have on the podcast all the time, had a little one minute video uh, in his new coaching company. And uh, it was literally the whole purpose of the video is to say, if you want to be an M&A, right, and be an acquirer, um, you you have to you, you have to realize that you have to put 10 times more effort into finding deals than you think you have to if you're going to find them on your own. And as an example, not rely on a firm like yours that right. kind of match makes. Right. Um, and sometimes that's hard. There's more buyers than sellers. Uh, and he was talking about how you almost have to go back to like when you were a first year advisor and you have to think about this really prospecting and how much time and energy you put in, which I thought. Uh, was kind of interesting. So I think advisors get a lot of advice on, well, if you want to be an M&A, build a business around it, get situated, get ready, right? Put a system in place, hire some people so that you are deal ready, right? Is what I guess the industry calls it. Yeah. I believe that there are a lot of advisors out there that are becoming what they believe to be deal ready. They're making investments or yeah. made investments, right? But what they didn't necessarily do as well is make sure that they're financially prepared for the headwinds that could, and in many cases, have actually come. So I'm a million dollar producer. I go, I want to become a $2 million producer. I buy a million dollar business. I have a business development person. I kind of follow the cutting model and I hired a junior advisor to run it who cost me. $150,000 a year. And then all of a sudden your assets, right, have contract because of the market of 13%. The interest rate on your adjustable rate loan went up. Uh, maybe you paid slightly more than you needed to in your excitement to get the business. 
And now all of a sudden you've got the tax arbitrage of right the income coming in as ordinary income versus right. uh you know the depreciation or the amortization of the uh, I can never get those two straight of the you know the goodwill that you purchase um blah 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 so i've actually uh you know coached some advisors recently or you know had advisors want to pick my brain who were actually struggling with acquisitions that they did in 2022 because of all of those pieces and are wishing that they went a little bit slower so my super duper long-winded way but i'd love to just get your perspective i know you don't necessarily coach advisors per se on practice management, like, you know, but I know you've got a, a lot of deal flow and experience in that. Are you seeing anything like that with folks that are just too anxiously wanting to be a M&A star that maybe aren't really financially or from a skill and leadership perspective ready to do it? Yes. And the challenge obviously with that is, I mean, acquisition sounds great. It can be great. I mean, it's undoubtedly the fastest way to grow your business, assuming you can find the deal flow. But as you know, uh, you know, it's, it's not all roses on the acquisition front. I mean, you've got onboarding of the clients, which is, you know, if you're buying even somebody's small book of business, they still probably spent 20 or 30 hours a week on it. Like you're buying somebody else's job. So you need to be able to onboard that. Sometimes it comes with additional staff, maybe a new location. I mean, it's just, it, it's a it's a lot. And then when you end up with a seller who, to your point, wants maybe a little bit more than it's otherwise worth and the buyer's okay with it. And then you end up with this perfect storm of the interest rate environment and taxes, you know, their ability to amortize it to your point. It you end up with these deals that get pretty thin. I mean, which is where we were, frankly, 10 years ago when these deals were all seller financed and the seller wouldn't do it over more than like three or four years, occasionally five, if you had a good relationship and rapport and you were trying to squeeze you know, a deal at two and a half times revenue into a five-year payback after debt service and taxes and some overhead, there it had to grow. Well, with the bank financing coming in now at 10 years or you know, BDs tossing their hat in the ring too with 10-year financing, Buyers started to get a little bit more aggressive, but to your point, sometimes a little bit too aggressive and they, they don't have enough of a margin buffer built in to really you know also account for their time because it can be the fastest way to grow, but like all growth engines, it has an uncanny ability to be a black hole for your time, uh, which if you don't have the time to give away, can make this process even more daunting beyond just the finances. So I mean, it goes back to change management and, you know, good change, bad change. We're all a little resistant to it. When you throw in the fact that, you know, margins start to get really skinny on some of these deals, you can end up with some of these buyers that it, it almost feels like they're growing for the sake of growing. That if you really sat down and asked them about their, their business plan for the next 10 years, you know, you want to get to a billion in AUM or whatever your number is. Well, A, Y, B, how? And, and they don't, they don't usually have that. I mean, this comes up in valuations a lot and I'll shut up after this, you know, where we go through and we do, you know, for bigger firms, businesses, we're doing an income-based valuation. Well, we need to know management's projections for their, you know, revenue and expenses for the next, you know, four or five years, just so we know. And I wouldn't tell you, I mean, there are so many times we get sort of a deer in the headlights. We're like, well, how would we know, you know, our projected growth rate and expenses for the next five years? To which I think, well, 
If you're focused on building an empire that's going to get to a billion in AUM, how do you not know that? <laughs> couldn't couldn't agree more, David. And I I, uh, I was really interested in your view on that. Um, and I, I you know as you talked about the three or five year note relative to you know seven yeah. or in some cases ten year uh, amortization on loans, because I could just share personally. Um, so, you know, we've got a great big business and lots of free cash flow. Um, but as I look back at a lot of the deals that I've done, because we've paid fair prices, et cetera, I look back right. and I go, man, I don't think there's a lot of money in there. Like I, on a cash flow basis, not so good. On an equity basis and paying down the debt and all that, yeah, it'll, there'll be good deals. And right. to your point, I think that my eyes were wide open, right? But I'm working on two acquisitions right now both of the advisors have the same thing in common which is they've acquired other businesses in the last 18 months yeah okay and they they're financially not in the good spot um and they are emotionally maybe more importantly when i say financially not in the good spot they're not in a terrible spot it's like man these things aren't working the way i thought and i didn't realize what the cash flow would be like and the darn market went down and that didn't help matters and you know kind of reconsidering but to your point they're working their tails off and you know doing the work right. of another advisor now <laughs> and they weren't ready because they didn't really have on their team someone um you know they weren't they weren't they weren't leaders yet where they could develop that next gen to the level that they could take on a whole new business and run it the way the previous advisor did. Right. So um, I see a lot of it. And it's funny, I saw that coming a little bit, David, like a year ago, yeah, um, okay. just in advisors that I coach and um, that, you know, I just, or just advisors I know, they're like, man, we're, I, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but are like, hey, I kind of want to be like you. It's amazing what you're doing and the business is growing. Like, and they and they they're trying to emulate it, but they don't understand all the the moving pieces uh, to it. And I try to kind of share that wisdom, and uh, that's what I'm trying to do right now to listeners yeah. as well. Uh, as are you, is just share some of that wisdom a little bit because um, you know there's there's risk in uh, in the unknown. And if you're you know the old saying, you don't know what you don't know, uh, is is an interesting one because right. even myself, I'm like, man this stinks you know, like, like it's not fun to go write a big check or take a big loan and have assets depreciate and have you know a little attrition here or there it starts to starts to add up one of the things david that i love about doing business with with srg and i know Kristen kind of runs your wife you know runs your kind of m a uh part and and helping advisors find the right match for their business and right. kind of advocating sort of on both sides in a, in a way um, is that you run an amazing cash flow analysis for the advisor, right? And I think that little piece, and I've worked with other competitors of yours, and you're the only firm that I'm aware of that provides something like that. And it's great because you look at it, one, it helps you understand your cash flow and the tax ramifications. Right. And I know Kristen's a CPA, and while it's not tax advice and you should run it by your tax advisor, it does give you a, a, a feel for what's going to happen. But I think it also helps the buyer, I'm sorry, the seller be a little bit more realistic and go, okay, right. if there's only 10% free cash flow, you know, left after taxes for this buyer, it must be a pretty good price because who the heck's going to buy a business and have negative cash flow? That's, you know, 
not not going to happen with most at least you would you know right. you would tend to think so um you know so th you know thanks for sharing that and you know i know we're getting a little tight on time here what i would like to ask you is as you know probably our last question although we'll probably add one more somehow after you answer but is um what do you see in 2023 right so we talked about the change from 21 to 22 here we are fe early february of 23 more deals less deals you know bigger smaller pricing uh structure all that kind of stuff so i'll hit on three points and you can pick any one of them if we want to unpack it more assuming we even have time uh number one is on the lending side i think there's likely to be more competition you know where historically it was originally you know, ppc loan they were the you know sort of the first players in the game then live oak committed capital to the space in a big way and then there's been a you know handful of others over the last couple of years which has been great i mean because we went from a totally underserved market and i wouldn't say it's saturated now but there's now you know six seven dedicated industry lenders committing capital i expect that number will go up by one or two every year for the next couple of years because you as advisors just have really low default rates the recurring revenue doesn't hurt matters there sellers focusing on finding the right fit frankly oftentimes to the detriment of their price in many cases you know really helps drive these high retention rates i would also say on the lending there's more broker dealers, you know, that are starting to toss their hat in the ring on the financing. And I got to tell you, I think that's going to hurt the industry long-term um, because again, they're coming in with kind of special rates for their advisors. There's more to it for them than just lending. It's about keeping their advisors. Trouble is it's going to end up, you know, sort of lowering the interest rate, which is going to lower the attractiveness to these outside lenders committing capital. So more lending, and I think more from the you know IBDs and custodians, maybe even some camps tossing their hat in the ring, which long term I think is going to hurt things. I think deal volume probably back on track, pending this lovely recession. I hate to even say the dang R word yet again. Uh, you become this self fulfilling prophecy, but pending any major recession, you know, avoiding that in 2023, I think we're likely to get back on track. I mean, there's still a ton of deal volume that's pent up. A lot of activity stirred up by all this, you know, PE and aggregator talk. And last but not least, I think we're going to see more advisors getting back to what you talked about earlier, just getting more intentional about their exits, where it's not going to be like just selling one day because they're tired of the markets or tired in general or health issues. That'll still happen. But I think it's going to be more people with a very premeditated plan. You know, five years from now, I want to be retired. And therefore, I'm going to sell today and then you know, keep working for a couple of years part-time or sell part of my business. Like that's kind of become the new norm. So I think those are probably my three quick hitters. Yeah. Super aligned on all that. I think, uh, I think you're spot on and uh, makes a ton of sense. So I, I would like to unpack, I want to make sure I understand exactly what you mean. So when you're talking about BDs and custodians and, uh, mm -hmm. and others that are in the lending game, right? So um, what I'm hearing you say, and I'd love for you to just go a little deeper is one, yeah. it sounds like, you know, understandably it comes with some handcuffs, nothing's for free, right? So yep. while the rate might be better and the terms might be better and you might not need to go through, um, you know, all of the, uh, the, the crazy uh, due diligence, right? To the same right. level as with a bank, which is time consuming and frustrating and all that. It does come 
I assume with the level of handcuffs and while well, we lent you the money and now it's almost like a, like a, you know, little golden, uh, golden handcuffs. Yeah. Is that, is that what you mean there? Yeah, no, 100%. And because they have other benefits to be gained by loaning this capital, sometimes they'll do it at you know, slightly lower rates. To your point, they'll loan it faster because, I mean, especially like in the IBD space, they have your money before you have it. I mean, they can garnish wages even easier, I think, than the federal government can. So they're not worried about it. And again, they have the handcuffs. They want to keep you, you know, locked up for the next couple of years. And presumably, if you're borrowing that money, you weren't going to go anywhere anyway. Um but because they have more stuff baked in, in terms of, you know, why they would do this than the banks do, which is just to earn a return, um, they can get more competitive on the rates. And the problem is that ends up you know, basically causing you, the buyer shopping rates to go back to the lender and say, hey, by the way, you know, my fill in the blank broker dealer custodians offer me, you know, a full percentage point less than you're offering. Can you help? It's going to end up sort of pushing rates down, I think, across the industry. And the reason why I say I think it's going to hurt things long term is I don't think the broker dealers, the custodians are in the lending game for the long term. It's it's a new shiny object. It's a great retention tool. It's good for marketing. But I don't think they want to long term be a bank loaning money to advisors. So all they're going to do is end up sort of driving the rates down for everybody else, which is going to make our industry less attractive. You know, when these folk firms are looking at where they deploy their capital. Because again, they're not just dedicated to the advisor industry in many cases. So all of a sudden, other industries start might looking a little bit more attractive, in which case we may find as some of the BDs and custodians pull some of this capital back in a couple of years, mm. there might be another sort of vacuum or void left where a lot of the industry lenders have found it to be a lot less attractive because everybody wants 4% rate you know, fixed over 10 years. Right. So it, I just want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah. I'm, I, this is why I love meeting you with you. you know, so I'm, I'm learning a little. So what I'm hearing you say, and it makes a lot of sense if I'm understanding correctly, is okay, so XYZ broker dealer is going to give a more competitive rate than XYZ bank who's in the business and right. loves for all the reasons you said before, lending to the wealth management space, sticky revenue and uh, low uh, default rates, so on, et cetera. Yeah. Um, now more advisors go borrow, right? Which one locks them into the BD, which means they probably can't sell outside of their existing BD perhaps, yeah. uh, which isn't great for free marketplace. And then right. B, um, XYZ Bank now says, okay, well, I've got to actually take a lower interest rate because I've got competition that is harder yeah. to compete with. So let me go lend in another industry and let's not focus so much on wealth management, which fast forward, which is super insightful of you, three years, five years down the road, what does that do to valuation when right. the EDs and RIAs say, okay, mission accomplished, advisors with golden handcuffs, therefore, um, we don't want to lend money anymore, or it will be at a higher rate with more strings. And we go as an industry, well, I don't want to do that. We go back <laughs> looking for capital from the bank and they go, well, we don't do that anymore because you guys left us for three or four years. So right. we found a new shiny object and put all our resources into serving that marketplace. And that ultimately hurts the overall valuation of the industry because the whole ecosystem is uh, not basically open, right? It's not right. what it's supposed to be as an open marketplace. Is that, yeah. is that what you're putting down? You you summed it up pretty succinctly there. Um, I mean, you think about like a, the mortgage industry, if all of a sudden 
nobody was doing 30-year mortgages. It was all down to 15-year mortgages or less. What that would do to home values, i.e. your purchasing power, that's my concern with the industry is if the BDs end up forcing rates down, the rates aren't as attractive to these industry lenders. They go elsewhere or stop deploying as much capital here. BD custodial financing goes away or gets you know lessened in a couple of years. And now there's not as many people providing capital. Sellers don't want to loan the money to the buyer over a decade. Again, they'll do it over three or four years. And all of a sudden, we're left trying to support these multiples that have been kind of dependent on 10-year financing. And now we're trying to do it in less than half the time. Like, I just, I don't think it's sustainable. So as you look at, I don't think it's an issue necessarily for 2023, but I do think there'll be more increased competition in 2023, which was your question. I'm more concerned, you know, 2023 and beyond on the lending side. Yeah, super insightful. It's like, uh, you're playing chess, David Grau. I'm playing checkers, man. You're playing chess. I love it. But that's, I'm worried uh, about my own succession plan. Yeah, no, <laughs> yo, I get it. And listen, it affects everybody, right? So it's almost, you know, thinking out loud here, it's almost like, hey, advisor world, like be thoughtful because yes, while it might help you acquire a business, when you go to sell yours in three, five, 10 years, it might be worth less because of, the right. way that kind of domino effect ultimately goes. So yeah. uh, as always, my friend, uh, great, great tidbit there and uh, uh, super appreciative of that. So I'll hit you with the last question, David, which is what did I not ask you of anything that I should have or anything else that you'd like to, you know, to share, uh, share with the audience? And, and I'll say a little shameless selling on your part, which I know you don't like <laughs> to sell is uh, you help advisors, I believe, still kind of decipher through financing and kind of look at those seven or eight options you mentioned and help them make the best decisions or at least vet the best decisions. You guys are still doing that, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's kind of funny because everyone, I think, assumes that it's it's like getting a home mortgage. We want the best rate, right? Well, yes. Don't get me wrong. We do. But commercial financing, when you sit down and you line up you know, six or seven different lenders and start looking at their loan covenants, their processes, the types of deals that they like to loan to, their credit boxes are all totally different. And so then you end up with folks who come to us and say, oh, you know, my deal wasn't bankable. Well, it's not bankable from the one of like seven banks you talked to. You just were unfortunate and you picked the wrong bank to talk to. Like that's not the kind of deal that they like doing. So You'll find if you find like you're beating your head against the wall with one of the lenders you're working with, take the time to pick the phone up and call us, call one of the other lenders, do a little bit more due diligence because you may not have a bankable deal. You may just not have the right bank for your deal. Yeah. Yep. So uh, super well said as always. And you know, to our listeners, I'll kind of end uh, with a little shameless selling. So um, you know, without ego, I consider myself to be pretty good M&A guy and have a fair amount of experience in it. David acts as my consultant. Um, and it is amazing to have somebody to bounce ideas off of. And it's not only around M&A, it's around structure, it's around agreements with your you know, junior advisors, it's partnership agreements, it's forming LLCs. So um, you know, shame on me if you go back before I met David, um, you know, I've known David for a long time, but, you know, engaged him probably three years ago, four years ago, when we started to do some work together. Right. Um, I honestly just thought David was an M&A guy and like they listed practices and he was out as a industry voice, but it was all to ultimately say, hey, you know what, uh, there's a practice for sale and I want to buy it because those were the things that at the time I was interested in. 
Um, little did I know that he's a wealth of knowledge and has a team of attorneys and CPAs and folks on the team uh, that can actually help make your business safer and stronger and compliant and protect the equity that you've actually built organically or inorganically yeah. and kind of work as your advocate to protect, you know, your what's probably your biggest asset. So um, I wasn't planning to say that, but as I'm listening, <laughs> I'm like, man, this guy's so darn smart. Every time I talk to him, I learned something. And um, that's why we're doing this podcast, right? Is so our listeners can learn. And uh, hopefully you learned a lot from today. And if there are things in your business that need to be what I would call buttoned up, right? From uh, agreements or, uh, you know, buy, sell, you name it. All of those things live inside of uh, Succession Resource Group. So, David, that's, I won't make you shamelessly sell. I'll shamelessly sell for you. <laughs> Uh, if our listeners want to find you, uh, how do they find you best? Uh, probably easiest, honestly, just hit the website, successionresource.com. We've got our chat on there that gets directly to our administrative staff. If you need time to talk with somebody, to John's point, on something a little more technical, we'll get you over to you know somebody like myself or myself if I'm available. If it's you know just getting started on a project, we got some great business development people that will follow up with you. So website's a great place to start. All our contact information is there. We're always here and available. And uh, you probably, I think you mentioned it, John, but social media, you know, follow us on LinkedIn. We're pretty good about posting all of our latest and greatest content, webinars, getting a chance to join an amazing podcast like this one. Uh, all that stuff lives on our social media accounts as well. So. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you again, my friend, for being a guest. We'll definitely have you on next year. Maybe we'll uh, we'll see if your predictions were right for 2023. So to our listeners, thanks for listening to another episode of Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors. If you yourself or anyone you know could be a good, interesting guest, shoot us a note and make it a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find the episode show notes and subscribe for updates by visiting cuttonconsultinggroup.com forward slash podcast. Make sure to subscribe and download the episodes on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next week.